Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, listeners and audience. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Last week, we have Rich Fishman with 8,000 units uh, with almost half of it is owned by himself. And he have bought across over 20 years, across five to six different states. And he gave us an outstanding overview on what happened during the crash of 2018. Was that really true that everybody need a roof above their head? Uh, and that's what a lot of gurus are telling in multifamily. Or is it true that uh, multifamily has the lowest uh, default rate? You definitely need to listen to that podcast because he went through the whole downturn with his, all his multifamily and came back up after the cycle and he gave a lot of awesome perspective. Today we have Kevin Burb. Hey Kevin, you want to introduce yourself? Hey James. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a quick overview for sure. So I, I'm, uh, I've been investing full-time in real estate for uh, going on 20 years now uh, and I uh, got started like a lot of folks do with single family investments. It was just what my mentor was doing. It's what he was good at and it's what he taught me. And so I didn't reinvent the wheel. I did exactly what he told me to do. That that evolved over time into uh, uh, multifamily investments and other types of commercial real estate. Uh, and that basically led me up through the, the, you know, to the crash of 2008. That's a very challenging times there. Um, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, was reborn in 2011, 2012, and was introduced at that point in time to mobile home parks, which is what we focus in today. And so for the past uh, seven years now, we've been solely focused on mobile home communities. We own uh, parks in 13 different states here uh, in the, throughout the U.S., and um, that, that's our niche of choice as of now. So Awesome, awesome. I mean, Kevin is being very humble. So just to give you guys some background, I when I was in my W2 job, uh, one of the first podcasts that I was listening was Kevin's podcast. I mean, the podcast is called Real Estate Investing for Cashflow with Kevin Bob, and it's an awesome podcast. It focuses a lot on commercial real estate. I really learned a lot, uh, you know, when I was in W2 and I was listening to it in the car and and you're still still doing the podcast, right, uh, Kevin? I am. Absolutely. <laughs> I do two podcasts. So I do the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast. And then about three and a half years ago, I thought it was a good idea to start a second podcast if I wasn't busy enough already. Uh, and I started a mobile home park investing podcast, So, which is specifically to that topic. So. Got it, got it. So uh, yeah, James, I remember the first day we actually met, not to interrupt you, I remember when we first met, I always joke with you every time I see you about, uh, I got a weird memory. I forget a lot of things, but I remember the odd things. And uh, I do those free Friday calls. I've been doing it for like five years now. And I remember you know, that's how you and I originally met was during one of those 30 minute calls on a Friday. And uh, yeah. I just happen to get, I don't remember why I remember this part of our call, but I happened to be making lunch uh, with my Bluetooth in while we were talking about a multifamily deal that you were taking down in, I believe, San Antonio, Texas. So Yeah, yeah. That was my <laughs> second, uh, second deal and was buying 174 and we found it on our Yellow Letter Marketing uh, yeah. campaign. And, and it's just very interesting because when you, had, when you had your podcast, I know you announced it that you're giving 30 minutes free of your time. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. And I'm going to talk to a celebrity, <laughs> right? So, so, I mean, right now I do offer like 15 minutes of my time for whoever want to talk to me. Just send me a mail at james at achieveinvestmentgroup.com. Yeah. We are not big celebrities. We are just not, no, we are just normal people, right? So, you know. 
I get as much value from those calls as, as, as the other side. That's how, that's what I like to think. And you just never know who you're going to meet on the other end of the phone. Right. I mean, that's how I, that's how you and I, you know, yeah, I know. Each other. you know, just you never know. And so yeah. I, th- I think that you, ha- you have to keep that normalcy in your life. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I enjoy those calls. I met a lot of great people along the way. Yeah. So Surprisingly, I still remember the day you called me and the moment you called me, so I'm not sure why, but that was like what, probably five, six years ago. And I don't yeah, remember. Yeah. Yeah. Calls. I got on five years. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, I mean, I want to really dive deeper into mobile home park. I, mean, I think I can see like you have like $150 million real estate transaction. Is it all mobile home park? How many parks yeah, do you so own right now? And um, can you give that kind of details? Yeah, no, we don't have a, our, our current portfolio is not $150 million. That's just, yeah, that's like my transaction volume. Transaction. Okay, got as, it, a principal, got as a principal, mm-hmm. you know, and in investments okay. over the years. And so thanks for being about, honest, Kevin, because a lot of people yeah, misuse these no. big numbers to do their marketing. And no. we found out they don't have anything. They're probably yeah, right, a KP right. or a passive investor in some I know. 500 units. You know, that, that's really awesome that you're being very upfront with that. Yeah. And in and, and the mobile home parks that we own, I am the majority principal in the, in the parks we own as far as like on the GP side and things like that. So we'll get that clarity okay. out there as well. Okay. That's awesome. That's <laughs> uh, but awesome. So we, we, we teeter around, uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we're not really sellers. Uh, so to answer your question of like what, what we own today, um, mm-hmm. we've been teetering around like the 2000 mark. We go above it, go below it. We just, uh, we got a park that's closing in like a week and a half. Um, we sold a park earlier this year, and then we're going to be selling one probably February next year that's in contract currently. So, you know, but we got one that we're closing on in like 45 days, which is 215 lots. And so, you know, we're, we, we keep teetering around this 1900, 2000 mark. Um, we've just been, we've really been, uh, um, you know, evolving our portfolio, selling off some of the smaller properties, selling off some of the properties that we don't really have an interest in scaling in that particular marketplace or, Maybe it's just a, it's one that just doesn't fit our model moving forward. I, you know, I don't know how else to answer it other than that. But uh, yeah. um, so that's where we're at today. Um, we're really long-term cash flow investors, though. That that really is our business model. It's just, uh, you know, as far as the selling side of things, um, you know, we like, I like to take advantage of of an opportunity when it arises. Um, that's one thing I did not do prior to 2008. I never would sell anything. And um and it and it came back to bite me at that point. So I am not a seller. However, I will sell when the timing's right and the price is right. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that experience mm-hmm. because I mean I've heard about that in your podcast. So you were doing single family home before two thousand eight, and you were doing very well. I guess. And and multifamily. Yeah. So I had oh, uh, multifamily. Just, okay. Yeah, yeah. But mostly single family was our was our focus. That was our business model. That's what we um you know were very competent at. We had acquired a few hundred multifamily doors over the years, just almost by accident. We didn't really put much effort into it. Just deals that come our way, small multifamily stuff, you know, 36 unit, 48 unit type properties. And we just, you know, kind of threw them into our rental pool. However, the biggest part of our model and the thing that took the most time and energy was a single family, you know, buying these single family rental properties and managing a portfolio across multiple different counties. And it was just very inefficient. And it's unfortunate because I think we just got very complacent with our model. You know, we were, we felt we were really good at it. And um, we never took the time to, you know, to be honest with ourselves about how inefficient that was and that we should have just taken our efforts and converted them over to multifamily at that given moment. And I think that we would have fared through the downturn a lot better. Uh, the single family properties, it wasn't really the single family that sunk us during the downturn. It was a whole mixture of, of ingredients. I mean, you know, Florida was ground zero for the crash. Um, a lot of our properties, uh, not only did they lose you know, within a year period of time, they were upside down when our leverage point on the front side originally was somewhere in like the 65, the 68% range. So we were very low leverage. 
Most of them were upside down underwater within a year. But not only that, another big thing in Florida that really was a major impact to us, there was a lot of speculative single family builds happening back then. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember back in that heyday, I guess you could say. <laughs> that was back when like a new build property in like Vegas or Phoenix or or Southwest Florida would literally flip three times before it was ever even occupied, before it was ever finished. Uh, it was oh, okay. crazy. So there was like thousands of new home builds happening in Southwest Florida for a population that wasn't really coming. And so the big nail in the coffin for us back then was uh, a lot of these builders that had these properties that they couldn't, they weren't selling, they started renting them out. And so now they started pulling from like, you know, they started pulling the, you know, the populations away from our rental properties and they offer better incentives, what have you. There's a new product, you know? So we, we had an occupancy issue. We were under up underwater in value and like, it's just a perfect storm, man. It was ugly. It wasn't fun at all. We and, and the banks at that point weren't willing to work with us. This was like a year within entering into this, this downturn. The banks didn't have loss mitigation departments. They didn't, they weren't prepared for this. And so we struggled with a majority of our lenders to even do workout deals or loan modifications, what have you. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I read some books on on how the lenders can be nasty during the downturn. Right now, they're super nice. Right? I think they got a lot more. I think they got a lot more flexible. Okay, as the years went on, because they had to, mm. you know. But like th- this is like this is in the beginning, like the first year of the downturn. Like no one knew how bad it was really going to get. Are we at the bottom? Are we at the bottom? And like I feel like that mm. question was asked for many years before. It's like wow, it's 2011, and 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 it's still messed up. Like things are still fairly bad. Uh, you know, and I, I think it took the banks a while to realize that and to even put the infrastructure in place to manage all these defaults. Like it was a disaster for the banks as well. I mean, they had more defaults and they, they had to build entire departments within their, their, their companies to manage this onslaught of defaults. So yeah, it was, it was a challenging time for everybody. Do you think you could have been better if you had a lot of non-recost loans during that uh, time? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I mean, as far as like my personal assets being attacked and things of that nature, absolutely. And I think there's also a lot more flexibility with the non-recourse lenders to to okay. work with a borrower. Um, okay. Um, because they don't have all that. You know, they, they don't have oh, personal they don't assets. Have the leverage, right, so. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, I, I, you know, another thing that hurt us uh, pretty bad, like on our part, a lot of our apartment properties and a lot of the commercial uh, loans that we had, like sometimes we would have a lot of times we would package up like eight to 10, 12 single family properties, put a commercial loan on it, take money out, what have you. And that was kind of our model. A lot of that debt was shorter term recourse debt. It was five year, you know, either resets or five year balloons, 20 year AMs. And so um, a lot of our multifamily stuff, what happens, we didn't default on multifamily. However, after all the, our credits started going bad in the single family stuff and we started having issues there, we couldn't get new loans when the time came due, like a couple of years later, like we couldn't get new debt in place. So we had to sell things for basically fire sale prices and give them mm. away. It was and basically either, either gave it back to the bank, did some minor workouts, did short sales or had to sell at fire sale prices. And you know, it was, it is what it is. You know, I learned yeah. a lot from that period of time and, and, uh, things move on and uh, I've learned a lot from it. And I think I'm a stronger investor and a better investor nowadays because of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you you brought up three or four cities, which is very, very high growth right now, right? We're at the late of this cycle, which is similar to 2008 mm-hmm. before that, which is like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Florida, right? So do you think we are at the same stage right now? Because they are one of the highest growth uh, rent growth right now yeah. for multifamily, I would say. I'm not sure how much you would be able to compare multifamily that time and now, but can you, you? Well, I think the reasonings behind the crash back then a little different. I mean, like back then it was, you know, the sub, sub subprime loans. I mean, the lenders were so loosey goosey with anyone could get a loan. Any, anyone, even a, a waiter that just started this job yesterday that 
had no provable income could get a loan on a property. You know, that, that's one thing that hasn't really changed much uh, or that hasn't gone back to the way it used to be. Like uh, lending mm-hmm. restrictions are still very tight. I don't think that we have a fear. I'm not an economist and, and by no means am I an expert here, but I, I don't think our fear should be related to anything that was similar to back in the you know 2007, 2008 crisis and what caused that. So I know that there's a huge demand for multifamily. There's there's a, uh, a pent up uh, uh, demand for supply still in a lot of these markets uh, based on the population growth, what have you. I, I think that the the bigger risk lies in like the A class stuff, or it's like some new developments as far as like you know the game of musical chairs. Like who's mm-hmm. who's ultimately left holding the bag. I I really think that like you're you know what you do as far as like B and C grade apartment complexes is very similar to our business in that as long as you provide a clean, safe, and high quality product at an affordable price, that there's always going to be a demand for it, no matter what happens. Like I just. I'm a firm believer of that. And that's played out time and time in and time out. And you were making a mention of your last guest you had on. I'm going to have to go listen to that show. But what was his take? You know, what, what did he tell you uh, was the ultimate outcome uh, of his multifamily holdings uh, through that downturn? Yeah, what, what it was, it was very hard happened? for him during that downturn. I mean, he, yeah. he had to cut down a lot of it. And, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, the default rate was pretty high, like almost 8%. Right? He said a lot of people did lose their property to the banks. I wonder if that was because they were over leveraged, but not, not, I'm talking to him though, but you know, other operators, what have you, but see, that's it leading up to that recession last time though, people mm-hmm. were overpaying for apartment complexes. Mm-hmm. People were paying. And, and a lot of people back then, if you were, if you recall, um, one of the big, uh, the, the big hot trends was buying an apartment and doing a condo conversion. And oh, condo conversion yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you saw, you saw, you saw people buying apartment complexes for valuations that had no relative nature to the actual NOI that was in place. It was all based on a pro forma exiting out as individual condos, right? And a mm-hmm. lot of those condo things failed miserably. And so anyway, you know, how did your friend, the guy you interviewed, how'd he fare yeah. though personally? Well, I think he was through? not talking about condo conversion. He was just talking about no, just, when, as when far as income. multifamily investments, how how did he fare? How did his investments oh, fare? Oh, he he did say that it was pretty bad for him yeah. and for a okay. lot of his friends and uh, who was buying at that time you know it's, specific you know, markets or across the country and uh, he has been there on 20 years right now i mean he has like 8000 units right now but the amount of i mean the, the key thing is i mean everybody says everybody need a house under their roof right but he said hey people be become creative on how to get a roof above them they double up they live in their basement they yeah. move back so it's not like it's not like everybody's going to stay you know and you know, and just pay rent. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that changes is like the quality of your prospect changes as well. Uh, You know, people lose their jobs. People, you know, miss payments on their credit cards. They get bad credit. They they get into this revolving cycle, downward spiral. And so, although everyone does need a roof over your head, a roof over their head, the quality of that prospect might change. It might actually deteriorate over time of what you can really get to fill that unit, which, you know, a lower quality resident typically is going to equate in a higher turnover rate, higher expense and maintenance costs associated with running that property, what have you. So I think that there's other, um, there's other factors that, that are derivative of a, you know, downturn, what have you, even though everyone does really need a roof over their head. So yeah. that's kind of how I But do you think feel. the optimism that you had or your the entire market has before 2008 crash, like 2006, I'm sure everybody was optimistic. Nobody knows about the subprime price subprime mortgage right? because nobody really know yeah. in detail right people just but do you think the optimism that people have during that few years before the crash is the same as now there's some deja vu that i've had <laughs> you know uh, um and and i think maybe a lot of that has to do with even just watching like social media feeds and things of that nature a lot of the um 
a lot of the kudos and, and, uh, you know, congrats are given to folks that are just cause they like buy a property, you know, and, uh, <laughs> You know that that that's only part of it, as you, you know. Just started running, right? It's not a, they haven't gone a marathon yet. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like you gotta look not what it looks like today, but like can you execute execute the plan accordingly? And uh, what's it right. look like three years from now, right? Just because you bought something doesn't you know doesn't mean that you've won yet. It's easy enough to get on the front side. So I, you know, I so that to me, like that's a different form of that optimism. To me, I mean, I, social media yes. has increased the FOMO uh, syndrome. Well, it seems like, yeah, that's it. That's it. The success seems to be equated on social media to actually just doing a deal, whatever that means to get the deal done, overpaying for it, you know, mm-hmm. over raising investor capital, putting capital, you know, investors capital risk. I mean, buying bad markets, what have you. And, um, and I think that was a very similar uh, sentiment that was, that, that was shared by a lot of people back prior to the crash. You know, if we don't, if we don't buy now, there's not going to be anything left. It's gonna, we're going to get priced out of every market and then we'll never own real estate. Let's just buy whatever we can. Let's get that 95% loan. <laughs> so, you know, again, the, 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 you know, the, the lending standards uh, have not gone back to what they were then, which was a big cause of that, of that, of the crash. But um, I, I do think that there's some deja vu that I've had, uh, you know, the FOMO thing, fear missing out, that's real. And uh, it's, you know, we, we literally bought, we've seen, we've seen things be much more competitive over the past year. We bought, uh, you know, nine properties last year and we wound up buying two this year. So yeah. we did get sidetracked a little bit this year with building a property management company. And we, that's another discussion, but, you know, but even then, I don't think we would have bought more than maybe three or four properties if that was our sole focus, but we're very conservative and we've, we killed probably, I think we had seven or eight deals in contract that we ended up killing um, mm. for various reasons. Uh, just lots of hairy things out there. And yeah. uh, you can make money with hairy deals, but you got to really know what you're getting into. You have to go to, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, the, the experience that you go through the crash will make you really a conservative person, right? Because you know, mm-hmm. people who have never gone through it, they just, okay, we, we don't know how. We, I mean, including me, I didn't go through it. So I didn't know how painful is it, right? But I, I do read a lot of uh, publications and try to you know, feel the fear. At that time, right? I mean, you can't be too much uh, optimist. Uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm not so uh, engaged in the you know height of the optimism right now. So, so you you did single family. You went through this 2008 crash, and suddenly you you started coming to mobile home park. Why that mobile home park asset class, and why not go back to yeah. single family home and apartments? Well, yeah, it's a great question. So I'll answer the second part of that question first about why not go back to like single family properties. You know, I I finally had a internal point of reflection, uh, uh, probably like two years after the crash started, there was a couple of years where it was pretty challenging to even think about what was happening in my life. So like there was a couple of years where I don't like to say that I put my head in the sand and buried it, but uh, you know, it, there, there was a, the mountain of challenges. I didn't know how the heck I was going to get over it. I didn't think about too much real estate during those years, other than trying to manage the crisis that was at hand uh, in my own life and my business. And so, but somewhere around 2011, you know, 2010, 2011, I, went, I started going through like a reflection point in my life where I tried to look back and just really be honest with myself, like what I should have done differently, you know, what I ultimately felt went wrong. And, you know, I, and I came to a quick realization and I kind of knew it back then. I just, you know, you get comfortable and complacent, you know, we should have made a switch. Our model was very inefficient with the single family properties, you know, running multiple maintenance crews and management crews uh, amongst many different counties, having a home here, a home over there, a home over there, hundreds of them that way. Um, it was incredibly inefficient and it was very hard to scale, you know, like just going out and trying to buy one by one by one and buying 120, 150, 200 single family properties is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 200 individual closings, you know, it's just, <laughs> there's a lot of effort to make that happen. And, you know, being honest with myself, I knew that those same efforts could have been multiplied like, you know, 
10x. Um, but uh, you know, by by actually putting that effort into multifamily, I think that multifamily is much more efficient to operate and uh, could truly provide that cash flow and and help me get back on top much faster than trying to go back into the single family space. It just I wasn't I didn't have an interest in the single family. It was what I was taught at a young age, and I rolled with it, and I did really well with it, and then now. I felt a little more growing up and it was time to make a big change in my life. And I knew multifamily is going to be it. And so I went on this uh, exploration journey, uh, knowing, knowing that it was going to be multifamily. What I wanted to do, James, I wanted to go back and talk to everyone. I, I went on like the six month binge of interviewing and talking to everyone I could local and on the phone that had either been in the multifamily and made it through the crash and, and you know, just get a sense from them, like how things have changed today, how the landscape has changed. And then also talk to those that just got their start, you know, What's their perceived notion in the next couple of years? Where they, you know, what the the lending environment looks like? Where they're finding opportunity? What are the risks? I just I wanted to get an update because I basically stepped away for years from real estate and things had changed over those three or four years, right? Mm. And um, during this period of time, I was introduced to the guy to a guy by the name of Randy uh, through a mutual friend. And Randy owned mobile home parks here in Florida, three of them. Uh, he had been a banker for thirty years, and. Um, it just, I, I like meeting new people. So I'd say, hey, let's grab lunch. You're local to me. Let's grab lunch. And we did. And I didn't go there with the intent of like, I want to learn about mobile home parks. I just wanted to meet someone new that you know had been quite successful in their life. And uh, after like a two-hour lunch with Randy, I walked away saying, I'm going to buy a mobile home park. <laughs> I need to, I need to, I need to you know, either prove or disprove all these great things that Randy had to say about this niche and this asset class. And that's what I did. I, I, it took me about 12 months, bought a park up in Atlanta. We still own it today, a small park, a highly distressed park. And Bought that one, then bought a second one, then bought a third one, bought a four, you know, just spent a couple of years of my own money proving the concept. Uh, and then ultimately, once we proved the concept and went full cycle on a few things, went out and, and actually built a business out of it to where we, you know, started, you know, hiring multiple team members and bringing investor in, you know, investors into the game. And, and um, that's where we're at today. What was the uh, top three aha moments from that discussion with Randy that, you know, that one hour lunch that you had with him? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this isn't a, you know, compare, you know, multifamily to mobile home parks. I mean, but this is what he told me. This is, this is how his conversation went with me. He's like, you know, um, bottom line, you know, BNC class apartment complex is great. Everyone needs a roof over their head, just like you and I talked about, right? Affordable housing is in high demand and that and, demand and is what year growing. was this? Can we run a... This is uh, 2011. 2011, yeah. which is supposed to be yeah. the, the one of the lowest, best time to buy, I guess, right? Once. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and so he went on to say, you know, um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the big challenges with multifamily that he found in his career, again, he wasn't a multifamily guy, but, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, um, was, you know, the turnover, you know, you're turning 50, 60% of your, your tenant base every 12 to 18 months in mobile home parks. He's like, you know, our, our, you know, 95% of our, of our residents own their own homes and it costs a lot of money for them to move their home. So typically what happens, Kevin, is if they want to sell that home, they want to go somewhere else, move somewhere else. They don't move their home. They just put their home up for sale and they move and go buy a home somewhere else. And basically you never lose that lot rent. That lot rent continues to come in day after day. And you don't have that down period like you might have in the apartment and you don't have to make ready costs like you might have in the apartment. So that was one of the big ones. Another big one that, that really piqued my interest was the, uh, the just really the barrier to entry and that there's really no new supply coming on the marketplace. Um, you know, municipalities don't like our asset class. It's got a bad stigma attached to it. Uh, and so new, no new parks are being built. And so if you find a good quality park in a great market, you don't have to worry about competition coming down the road. Like it just, it's not going to happen. It, it's, 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 it's not a chance of it happening. It's not like self storage, right? Where somebody can just come and build something in front of you. Right. Right. Exactly. So that was a big one. I like that. Another big thing that he sold me on was just, uh, 
the, the management side of things, you know, when they, when the residents own their own homes, you're not, you're not maintaining their roof. You're not maintaining their plumbing. You're not maintaining their elect electrical, anything whatsoever. If that happens to their unit, just like a homeowner, would they call that vendor? They call the HVAC company. They call the roofer. They call the plumber to fix it. You're not in charge of that. Our only requirements to maintain the infrastructure, so the roads, the water and sewer lines leading to the houses and the, you know, the electrical infrastructure. Um, and that's pretty much it. And so, I was like, wow, that's interesting. So like, you know, low turnover, fairly lower management responsibility, and very rarely ever a point in time where you have a, you know, a down unit or a lot that's not paying you, you know, a lot rent. And so another big thing that, you know, so the fourth thing you asked me for three, but the big fourth thing that really sold me on it was, he's like, you know, Kevin, the, the, um, the there's a lot of first and second generation uh, park owners still out there. Like they, they, their family, either they built it or their father built these parks. And now they're aging out of them. A lot of these parks were built in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And these owners are getting very old. You know, like five years ago, the statistics were that like 85% of park owners only owned one park. And so to me, that means they're a mom and pop, right? They're not a big professional or institutional operator. And so his, his point that he was making was these individuals are they've been working these parks, like they, not like you and I, where we run them like a professional company. They've been in there, their bare hands working these things day to day. And they're either getting old, their health is becoming an issue. They're getting tired, what have you. And they're aging out of these things at a very fast rate. And so there's opportunity to get in and run it like a professional, you know, get markets up to a, you know, the market rate in the area, um, run it more efficiently, what have you, um, do a better job of collections, whatever they might be doing wrong there. So that was a big thing that piqued my interest as well is, is you know, working through that mom, mom and pop generation generation and finding opportunities that had a lot, a lot of meat left on the bone. So those were a big one. You know, those are the big ones he threw at me and many others as well, but those are some of the big ones that just really sold me. I'm like, I got to learn more about this. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I learned about Marlboro Home Park. I mean, I went for like some three day course and I really learned it. I love it. I mean, it's, it's really good asset class and yeah. it just, I didn't want to do it just because I believe in focus. I mean, sometimes as an entrepreneur, we like, we like to like, oh, a mobile home park. Oh, that's so cool. The South Stories. Let's go and do this. Shiny object, man. Shiny <laughs> objects, right? And I realized that, yeah. you know, to be really good at something, you have to have focus, right? So that's what I'm, one thing I wrote in my book, right? Whenever a passive investor chooses the deal sponsor, don't, I mean, make sure the deal sponsor is focusing on maximum two asset class. There's so much of details, right? Like in this, all this asset class and with this market being hot, you know, a, a jack of all trades can't really make money, right? So you do yeah, not know what's That's happening. true. You have Very that focus, true. and um, you know some some of the sometimes mobile home park is a bit small, right? I mean, you know, like like it used to be like what three million for like hundred parks or something like that. So, so we were like already doing like large deals, and we thought, okay, we're just gonna stick with the apartments, just focus and um, mm -hmm. make sure we are really good at it, right? So that's important, I think. And uh, yeah. so at high, very high level, can you explain how does cash flow being generated on a mobile home park? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, we we own the entire community, and uh, in a perfect world, you know, and, and, and you know, this is how we like to own the community where we own zero of the homes. So let's just I'll give you an example. We have a 149 space mobile home park in Buffalo, New York. Um, in that community, we own zero of the homes that are in there. Uh, there's 140 of those 149 lots that are occupied with residents that again they own their roof above their head. And they pay us, you know, on average, $428 a month in lot rent. They also pay their water and sewer. We build them back for their trash usage. So basically, our job in that community is to uh, maintain the roads, you know, make road improvements as necessary. We cut the common areas, the grass. We trim trees throughout the community. Um, just make sure that the, the, you know, the, the community or the subdivision is upkept. And their responsibility is to 
pay us for the you know renting of the lot that their home is sitting on. Um, and that's it. I mean that that we we make money in that manner. That that is the sole source of our revenue. Uh, now I say in a perfect world we don't own any of the homes. Unfortunately, we're not in a perfect world, uh, James, yeah. are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we uh, of our portfolio of approximately two thousand lots, we own about it, it. It changes every day. Somewhere between two hundred fifty and two hundred seventy of the mobile homes. Some parks we own zero homes. Other parks we own twenty. Um, it just really depends on how that old owner that we bought it from operated it. And so our goal with those homes that we own is to get out of the ownership as fast as possible. And so what that means to us is we'll go in and we'll do a you know very nice, you know, uh, um, builder grade renovation on them, uh, make everything you know, operate as it should, make them look good, and uh, ultimately try to sell them at a break even. And we'll even lose money on the homes. If we can find a cash buyer that will come in and purchase that, we know once they own that outright, that they are a very sticky resident and they'll end up staying there for a very, very long time. Uh, and so our goal is really get it to get it back to the lot rental model. Cause at that point, our management and our maintenance um, uh, responsibilities are incredibly minimal. So, yeah. So it's similar to, I mean, let me try to summarize for the audience. It's like a parking lot of a car, right? Just the there car, you go. Doesn't have a, car doesn't have a wheel to move. We are the, we are the home parking lot specialist. Okay. Well, you make a lot of money, right? Because I just own the land, right? So the earth, the earth is one of the best business on earth, yeah. right? <laughs> Yep, that's, that's awesome. it. That's a good way to put it. We are we are definitely a parking lot. That's it. Except yeah. the, the homes the homes are very expensive to move, and yeah. typically our, our resident base. That, that's you know I don't know I don't want to say that's a great thing about our resident base because that's not the best way to put it. But you know typically we cater to you know workforce housing. That's what we have. So so good hardworking blue collar folks, um, and you know the average single wide costs about five to six thousand dollars to move and reset in another community, and and a double wide you know six to twelve thousand. I'm sorry, a ten to twelve thousand. And, and the average folks that live in our communities, not, you know, I'd say the average, not some of them do, but the average do not have the, that type of money laying around to move their home. And so normally, like I said, what happens is they sell it just like you would a stick boat home. They put it up for sale. Someone else buys it. That person comes in and takes over the lot rent responsibility. So it's a beautiful thing. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, um, just in terms of the lots itself, uh, is there any other uh, issues with the city or just, you just own the whole lot, I guess, right? Uh, issues with the city meaning well i mean uh so basically you own the entire park so that whole thing is an as a real estate right so there's nothing that's to correct do. Yeah, the city doesn't own any of the things inside yeah. the park I guess. sometimes every park's a little different like we have a few communities where like the main road going through it is owned by the town or the city and mm -hmm. uh, we own the park it, you know so they maintain that one road we have other communities where um you know the water company owns uh, they they direct build the water and sewer line so when that park was built basically the, the local municipality that handled the water and sewer, they literally put the lines in and they own them and we're not responsible for water leaks or anything like that. Most of the communities, we own the lines, but there's some communities that are just anomalies, kind of standalones where we don't have to maintain it. So every park's a little different, but normally we own everything. You know, For the most part, we own everything in the park and we have to maintain it. Yeah. So do you get much depreciation because you just own the land, right? Uh, that's compared to like multifamily. You do, you do. We, you know, we did a bunch of cost seg studies um, last year, and uh, uh, and we we're actually pretty shocked. Uh, in fact, Tom Wheelwright, you know, from uh, Ritzstad Advisors, I didn't know he was good friends with um, with uh, the, the person that does our cost seg studies. He personally reached out to me because he had never looked at a study from a mobile home park before, oh, and she really? shared one of ours with him. And he's like, "You got to come on my show." He's like, "I'm actually baffled at at, at you know the uh, 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 the amount of." Um, 
uh, depreciation here that, that you guys are able to gain. So the infrastructure, so the, all the improvements in the land, most of the value of that property, because we're not buying the homes, right. so most of the value is in the improvements of the property. Because a lot of our property that we're buying, it's not like path of progress. Like the, the, the dirt itself isn't worth the money. It's the infrastructure that's there that's really worth the money. And so um, I don't want to just off the cuff, you know, share with you some of the, uh, the cost seg studies, but uh, it's a 15 year uh, depreciation schedule. And uh, uh, I think we've, we've been able to, on a couple of our deals, we've been able to depreciate it like upwards of 60% of the actual purchase price there in the first year. So pretty oh, significant. Okay. Okay. Even without a yeah. bonus depreciation? With, with the bonus depreciation. With the bonus depreciation. Yeah. Okay, got yeah. it, got it, got it. So is it yeah. 15 years or is it similar to 15. like 27? Oh, 15. 15. So, mm-hmm. so mobile home parks are 15. Okay, yes. that's something that I didn't know. That's, that's yeah. very interesting. Okay, that's really good. And what about, uh, what is the primary value at in a mobile home park? Yeah, there's a couple big ones. Uh, I kind of like uh, classified as like low-hanging fruit, middle-hanging fruit, and then the high-hanging fruit, which is hard to get to. The low-hanging fruit for us is you know, simple operational changes, you know, they've got heavy payroll, we'll go in and, you know, they're, you know, they're basically got their family members and their cousins and their brothers on payroll, and we'll go in and chop it down to what it really needs to be. That's very low hanging fruit for us. Uh, some other low hanging fruit for us are just your know, rent increases. There's been many communities that we purchased that literally have not had a rent increase in 15 years, you know, 20 years, a long, long time. And uh, so that's very low hanging fruit. Medium hanging fruit to us would be controlling the water and uh, water sewer and other utilities expenses. Uh, so a lot of these parks, when they were built back in you know back in the day, water and sewer wasn't an expensive uh, utility. It just it wasn't. You know it, it was included. It was factored into the lot rent. You know the infrastructure was new back then, so there weren't leaks or wasn't waste or anything like that. Over time, infrastructure gets older. There's leaks that happen. People tend to abuse water. Water and sewer is very expensive in most parts of the country, and that's normally a very large line item on an expense uh, P- on a P and L expense statement. And so we'll go and we'll basically, uh, uh, you know, buy uh, individual water submeters, um, pretty advanced meters that are digital and have remote reads. And I uh, will install them in each lot, and we'll essentially start building the residents back for their own usage. Uh, proportionally speaking, we'll do the reads each and every month and build them back. So, <clears throat> number one, um, we've we've saved, you know, we'll save anywhere from twenty to forty percent of usage because people now get responsible very quickly when they have yeah. to pay for it. And then, you know, all those savings basically go to our bottom line. So it costs us a little bit of money, but typically in a normal sized park, we'll recoup that entire investment of the water meters within like twelve to fourteen months. It's pretty pretty quickly. Wow. Um, and then the high hanging fruit uh, of of the value add side is uh, uh, infilling of, of new homes onto vacant lots. And so a lot of communities that we own, um, you know, they might have some vacant lots in them, some more than others. So I'll give you an example. You know, we buy a mobile home park, it's 100 lots in size. Uh, it's got 80 that are occupied with trailers that are paying. The other 20 are, they were fully developed when the park was built. They've got infrastructure there. However, they do not have a mobile home sitting on them. And so what we'll do is we'll, we've got dealer's license in every state that we own uh, a park. And so we can buy wholesale from the, the retailers and manufacturers. And uh, we'll go buy brand new home inventory and we'll bring it in uh, and we'll basically create a retail program and, and find buyers for those homes to, to infill those lots. So we'll, we'll buy the homes, we'll bring them in. So I say that's high hanging fruit because it's very capital intensive. You know, it's, it costs money you know, to, to purchase a home and that money's tied up until you sell that home. So there's different programs out there that, that help you facilitate that, but it's still very capital intensive. And there's a lot of logistics involved with moving homes in and setting them up and things like that. So those are the big ones of how we add value to to communities. Got it, got it. And I mean, I think I believe the uh, the mobile home park uh, homeowners, right, compared to multifamily, which are renters, 
right? So it's completely different uh, mindset that's it. in terms of pride of ownership. Right that's now. it. That's it. And that's why we try to convert them to a homeowner as fast as possible. I mean, you still have your homeowners that you have to kind of uh, kick in the butt every once in a while to you know, <laughs> you know keep their house in order, keep the yard in order. But for the most part, I mean, we, you know, we're, we're pretty strict with our screening processes, what have you. And, um, and, and for the most part, the homeowners within our communities have pride of ownership, take care of their units quite well. Got it. Got it. Got it. So let's go back to the property management side of it, because I remember, you know, I think even when I was listening to your podcast about five years ago, you were always saying, oh, the apartment guys have it easy because they have their own property management. They're more professional. (laughs) Finally, after five years now, you are going to be moving your property management company under yourself, right? Are you going to self-manage? Well, well, yeah, yeah. So you guys do have it easy. I don't know. I'm you guys do have it easy. All you got to do is buy it and hand it off. Buy it. No, I'm joking. I know, there's, I know there's more to it than that. So uh, up until up until a year, uh, up until a little over a year ago, we managed all of our own assets. Uh, we did it in-house. And unfortunately, like the property management side of any business, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a certain size to where you can actually break even. And we were nowhere near that size. And so it was it was a losing endeavor for us. And so last year, uh, some sometime in the middle of last year, we were we were introduced to a property. We had never considered property management in the mobile home park space only because we were always told that options of the companies that are out there are poor, very poor. And I was told that by many different people, many different you know veterans of the industry. And so we never really explored it. So we always managed it ourselves. But last year, we were in contract to buy a property uh, up in Michigan. It was in receivership. And uh, the bank had uh, had had um, engaged this management company, national management company, a property management company that were mobile home park experts. They'd been in the business 40 years. They were engaged to actually manage the day-to-day of this thing while it was in receivership. And while we were negotiating, we were buying a note on this thing. All right, Kevin. So one thing that you know I got to know since a long time ago is like, I mean, you know that apartments has an easy way of getting into third-party property management and buying it and giving it to third-party property management. But recently, you have been trying to get your own property management company, or maybe you already done it. So can you explain why is that? Yeah. Yeah. So so um, in our space, uh, it is not the norm to hand off to a third-party management company. I think we're like the the, the redheaded stepchild or the, the anomaly of the you know, real estate industry because pretty much every other asset class, multifamily, uh, office, retail, all of them have multinational property management companies, a lot, lot to choose from, right? Many different people in the space, um, best in class, things of that nature. I had always been told in the mobile home park space by many industry veterans that it just doesn't exist here, that you know, there's only a handful of property management companies. Most of them aren't very good, what have you. And so basically, uh, you know, the initial years of us owning parks, we managed it ourselves. However, in order to build a property, uh, an appropriate property management company that's profitable, you have to have a certain scale. And we were never there you know, two years ago, we just weren't large enough. So it was kind of a losing endeavor for us. We were okay with it, but it, it was it was prohibiting our uh, ability uh, our ability to grow at, at the scale that we wanted to. We were really good at finding great opportunities, and we're really good at raising capital. The roadblock was actually you know the operations of all these different parks we were buying. And so just by happenstance, we were buying a note on a distressed property up in Michigan, and it was in receivership. And during that. And that transaction, we got introduced to the management company that was uh, running the show. And it was this large group. They've been in the space for 40 years. Uh, they, they are the largest fee manager in our in our business. And uh, they've got a, a footprint nationwide. I saw them firsthand and, and, and it seemed like they were doing a great job. Um, you know, within the first couple of months of us being introduced to them, of managing this asset that was not yet, yet ours. And so I flew up and met their team. And um, I flew my team up to meet their team, got to see their operations, got to learn about them. And 
everything seemed great. I mean, like I was impressed. Uh, again, lots of experience, way more experience than us in this business. Um, just they knew everyone in the industry. They knew all the intricacies of the business. They had different departments to manage those things where we were basically weren't trying to wear a million different hats. And it seemed like a perfect match made in heaven. And so after another month or two of, of letting them, you know, kind of testing them out on this asset we were buying and this note we were buying, we said, you know what, let's, let's hand them, you know, a majority of our properties and let's see how they do. And we kind of did it in like two different chunks. And long story short, you know, they're great guys. However, no one's going to ever manage your property like you do. No one's ever going to care for it as much as you do. And so within, within four or five months, we started seeing some pretty, uh, uh, pretty readily available signs that things were not going as planned. The promises weren't coming true. Um, you know, decisions that should have taken three minutes to make were taking three months to make. You know, just everything was moving like a snail's pace and nothing was getting done. And we were actually regressing. And, um, and it was frustrating. However... What happened during these first six months of us being with them is we literally acquired like another, you know, nine properties and we doubled in size. So unfortunately, it wasn't as easy as us making a decision saying, hey, we're going to give you our 30-day notice. We're going to take it back in-house because um, we surely did not have the infrastructure now to, you know, to actually manage our assets being that we literally doubled in size in a short period of time. And so uh, over the last six months, we've been, you know, kind of behind the scenes building out our property, like a, a legitimate property management company with systems and processes and, and, and hiring new team members. And we didn't want to bring it back in and fumble. We wanted to make sure that when we brought it back in, we basically built our own best in class operation and we could do it better than anyone else, whether it be for ourselves, our current assets, new assets we were buying, or, you know, if we decide, if we woke up one day and we ended up going crazy and we thought that we wanted to do third-party management for other people, that we would be best in class. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what we've done over the last five months, five or six months. And uh, um, that's actually sidetracked some of our acquisitions. We've only bought two properties this year. Probably could have bought a lot more. But anyway, I guess long story short, James, is you know, it's um, I'm, I'm somewhat envious of you guys in the multifamily space because you can find, you know, good, you know, there's a bar that's set with property management companies. And if one company is doing poorly, you know, there's, you've got other options to go to. And typically you've got, they kind of keep each other in line a lot of times. And I know that no one, they're still never going to treat your property like you would yourself personally. However, you've got options and you've also, you know, you just things that might not be worth one company, you know, that you could probably actually go and get served correctly at this other company. We just didn't have that option. You know, okay. we, we, this was the once and done. There was no other, there, there's other companies out there, but these are the best in class. And I'm like, if these are the best in class, we got to build our own because there's, there's another options for us. That's what we did. We brought it back in. And so that just happened literally November 1st. Like when we actually brought, truly brought everything, migrated it back in was November 1st. So as of this recording, like six weeks ago, Got it. Got it. So yeah, it's it's a different ball game, right? I mean, of course, it's going to slow down, slow you down in terms of acquisition because now you have to also manage the property management. But I think I think the overall, uh, in the long run, okay. it's much better for you, right? Because absolutely. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, control. the amazing strides that we've made just in the the construction side of our business and the um the marketing side of our business, as far as like sales are concerned, mm-hmm. has been like we've done more in the past two months. Than, than was completed in the past year. I'm not even joking. It's been absolutely amazing. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for it. I like, I like hey, if I'm going to screw up, I want it to be my fault. I don't right. want it to be someone else's fault that our properties aren't performing. I'm okay taking accountability if they're not performing, if it's me that's running the ship or driving the ship, right? But if it's yes. uh, another company and, it's, and they're doing a poor job and we can't control it, 
I've got issues with that. So yeah. that's kind of where we're at. And I also think when the market turns, I mean, people with their own vertically integrated will be have a lot more uh, leverage, right, in terms of control. I mean, a lot of property management companies are doing a mediocre job right now, but they escape because the market is super strong right now, right? That's it. The market props everything up. <laughs> yeah. When, when market turns, now we know how good they are because now... We have to, you know, answer, we are answerable to our investors and now we have to go to third party, but, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you just don't have the control. So one other thing that I want to touch uh, about the way you do business, I mean, a lot of times you raise money and not deal by deal, you use fund model, right? Can you explain mm-hmm. What's a fun model and why is that beneficial? Yeah, I mean, to keep it somewhat simple, I mean, it's really not much different than your deal-specific syndications uh, other than the fact that we've got multiple properties that we're putting underneath that umbrella, that fund umbrella um, versus just one individual property. So an investor is going to get their investment um, diversified amongst multiple properties, possibly multiple different markets rather than just one. So that, simply put, that, that really is the only true difference between probably how our business operates and how your business operates. The reason that we did, uh, that we decided to go that route um, was about three years ago. Uh, we, we, uh, we were going towards into the end of a year. We had just uh, founded Sunrise Capital Investors, uh, you're know, like a formal company, rather than just me and buying parks on my own. Um, and uh, we had a pretty stout pipeline and, and a lot of the deals kind of fell apart. And, um, you know, we're like, oh, well, we only have two deals now. They're going to, you know, they're going to close January, February next year let's just do two individual deal specific raises. Uh, that's fine. And then all of a sudden, like within like two weeks, somehow like these other deals came back to life and we all of a sudden had five deals. We had five that absolutely looked like they're going to close. We had like four of the five money that went hard. And anyway, we're like, okay, well now we got five. They're all going to end up dropping like in the same like week or two. Logistically speaking, it'd be an absolute nightmare to try to do five deal specific syndications. Uh, just it's a paperwork and, and logistics behind it, and then the legal costs associated with it. Didn't it's like that doesn't make any sense. They're going to close right at the same time. I think there's more of a benefit for our investors to give them diversification amongst all five of these versus just one, you know, one individually. And so we didn't know what the um, what, what the feedback was going to be, and we put it out there, and it was well received. Uh, and so it was it was great for us. It gave us a little bit more flexibility on the buying side, um, gave them diversification, um, and, and, you know, risk diversification amongst, amongst multiple different assets and, and uh, markets, and and so it's been a win. And so we did really well with that. Um, that was kind of like our test fund, and you know, last year, or actually about eighteen months ago, we launched a our second fund, which was a little bit larger fund, twenty million dollar fund, and um, and did the same thing. So. Um, you know, we're a little different though. Like a lot of funds, a lot of institutional funds will go out and they'll, they'll do, they'll get really aggressive. They'll raise all the money. Let's say it's a hundred million dollar fund. They'll go out and raise. They'll spend all their time and energy raising a hundred million dollars. And once they've got the commitments for, let's say maybe 75% or maybe more than that, then they'll actually start going to buy, mm-hmm. you know, once that money is there and uh, what we didn't want to do that, that costs the capital. It's very high. You know, we don't want the money sitting around idle. Um, and so we just continued our, building our pipeline and we would only, we'd bring money in in tranches. And so we'd only bring enough in during that fundraise that we actually know we knew we were going to need over the next like two months to close deals. So although it was an 18 month buying period over the, you know, over this last fund, uh, we would raise it in tranches, which meant our investor capital wasn't just sitting around idle, not collecting a return. We weren't accruing pref on money, you know, millions of dollars that were sitting around idle and, um, it, it just, it held us accountable, held everyone accountable, which I like it. it you know, our, our interests were very much aligned with one another. So you basically do capital call whenever you need the money. Again. That's it. Yeah, this, That's is it. Good, this is a good, this is a good capital call, not the other bad capital call. Right, right. So, exactly. The, the, you know, like the, the verbal, the verbal soft commitments are there. And, okay. um, 
you know, some of them might not come through, but you know, majority of them would, you know, I think okay. we maybe had about 5% dropout of folks okay. that actually so you through. basically get verbal commitment and when you have a deal, say now verbal, let's make it hard, right? Give you the money right now kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and Come. each one of these two funds that we started, see, we actually already had deals and contract going into them, you know? So it wasn't like we were raising a blind pool, like, oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise this much money and then we're going to buy. It's like, well, no, we got X amount of properties in contract right now. So um, while there might be more properties in this fund, you can you can physically see and see the proformals in each one of these. These are going to be properties that are in this fund. So there's something tangible there. That, so that's another thing that's a little different about us of how we do these funds. Like we don't go into them blind where we're just raising money and then we're going to go do what we say we're going to do. Like we're actually doing it simultaneously. Like we've got deals coming in. We've got deals in contract, money hard. So semi-blind, I would call it. Call it semi-blind. That's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> Absolutely. Some sounds, deals like, there, sounds like a rock is... band. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> All right, uh, Kevin, uh, can you give one advice to people who are trying to uh, start up in this business uh, in real estate or in, even in mobile home park? Uh, one advice? Yeah. Um, as an active investor. To it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, just trying to get started up, you know, I'd, I'd say go try to try to mute a little bit of the social media because everyone's on social media now, but like try to mute a little bit of that and go find the one individual girl or gal that's actually do, you know, they're doing what you want to do like they've actually they can they can prove to you that they're doing what you what it is you want to do like they're an actual gp they're not they don't have 5000 units of you know very minimal shares and as an lp and something and they're touting that i know that's happening a lot out there so you know try to mute all that crap and like cuz i know it gives people anxiety you know like social media gives people anxiety cuz they see oh everyone else is doing deals and i i'm yeah. like stuck here i can't get going just try to mute it out silence it and go find that go go find the james find guys like me like we're very good with our time we're, i mean we're not going to just give all, everything away for free per se like we only got so much time today right but like yeah, yeah. find an authentic individual like us i want to tout ourselves here but but <laughs> that will actually like give you some real advice that can give you some proper guidance at least give you some nuggets and get on your way and uh and and, and let all the other noise go because i think that bottlenecks people a lot that fear of missing out man that, that anxiety creates just this internal turmoil of like, I'm missing out. And then like, you get nothing done, right? You're like, you're like, I'm going to all these conferences and I'm reading all these books and I'm doing all these things. And you feel like that's big big money to some gurus out there. Now I have to do a deal. Yeah. (laughs) And I, and I think that you, you know, you, you, a lot of folks mistake that with like productivity of like Mm -hmm. attending things like that. It's great. I would do it all the time. You do it. Obviously that's, you know, we're part of a mastermind together, Mm -hmm. but like you've actually got to like, at some point you got to get granular and you actually have to, you know, take some risk and take, take that leap. But it's easier to do when you know someone like you or someone like me, or there's plenty of other people like us that, that one person you can just kind of lean on and uh, get, get some general advice from and get the, get the real picture from as well. You know, what's real and what's not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kevin, why do you do what you're doing? Why do I do what I'm doing? I really enjoy it. I mean, as far as investing in real estate, I really enjoy it. I love the people I work with. I love our team here. I really enjoy being actively. And so everyone like likes the different parts of the deal. Like as far as what I do, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, an Excel junkie. Like my other partner, he loves, he'll sit in front of an Excel uh, pro forma and run the model many different ways over like I'm five hours. And I don't want to shoot myself when I think of that. I'd rather be out in the field. I like executing on the plan. So I like taking something from what it is today and actually seeing the end result of, of our hard work and effort over a period of, you know, 6, 12, 18, 24 months. And I also like seeing the, you know, the, uh, the smiles on the faces of residents when we take something that's been blighted and actually make improvements to it, especially folks that have lived there for many years. And that's pretty rewarding to me seeing that kind of stuff, especially you get the one residence like, God, I've been here for 20 years and this place over the last 10 years was just scary. I didn't want my family to come over now. Like I, I, 
I've dreamt of the day to see it back in its former <laughs> glory. I like that kind of stuff. So yeah, and I and I like the lifestyle that that real estate provides, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it allows me to spend a lot of time with my wife and my kids and uh, friends Absolutely. and family and things like that. So Absolutely. And was there is there any proud moment throughout your real estate career that you can never forget is gonna be staying with you? This is there one proud moment that you think <laughs> I'm so proud of myself? Yeah, actually, there's one. It's the very first mobile home park that we bought. Uh, if you got, I'll tell the story. It's probably a two or three minute story, but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. We were buying a very, very, very distressed park in Atlanta, Georgia. It's in a good little town, but uh, it was in the southern part of Atlanta, MSA, which w- was got hit really hard with the recession. Was slower to recover because that was a lot of the new development that was out that way. Anyway, we we're buying this park that had been receivership for two years. It was fairly poor condition. Lots of squatters, all kinds of bad stuff happening there. The chief of police in the mayor's office was right across the street, like Caddy Corner. They had to drive past this place every day. And um, we got it tied up. And it was a small enough town, incorporated town, that we actually got a meeting with the mayor and his entire city council, chief of police, coding for everyone. Um, and we went in there with this, this grand plan of how we were going to literally spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to clean this place up, to improve it, and, and make, that, make it a proud part of their community. And we gave this big sales pitch. And you know, the mayor's like this really tall guy with a bald head and a handlebar mustache. He's a really mean-looking guy. He had like a... This is in Georgia. He had like a rifle on the wall and a stuffed fox on that wall. <laughs> Very intimidating guy. He let us talk. Everyone's kind of looking like shaking their heads. I thought we were like getting their acceptance. And he let us talk for 15 minutes. He looked at us and he said, if you guys buy that park, he's like, you're wasting your money. He's like, get out of my town. I've been trying to shut that thing down for years now. And I'm not going to stop until it's completely closed down. So get the hell out of here. Take your money somewhere else. <laughs> so we walked out of that room and we, and I looked at my partner and I said, what do you think we should do? Because we weren't getting financing. We were paying all cash for this thing too because it wasn't financeable. So it was like basically all the money we had at that point. We bought it anyway. So let's buy it. Like, what, I mean, let's just, <laughs> let's just show them what we're going to do. I mean, like, how are they going to truly stop us, right? Let's just do what we're going to do. We're never going to clean the place up. He obviously doesn't believe us, but let's prove him wrong. We did that, cleaned it up. Became really good friends with the code enforcement officer. That's kind of, that was our, our like, our, 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 our foot in, our shoehorn in just came like, like got her gift cards and like made her like us. And it like was very, we were very open with our communication to her. So if there was ever an issue, we addressed it right away. Anyway, 12 months later, I get a call from um, uh, the mayor, Bobby Carter is his name, got a call from him. And I answered, I didn't know it was him. And he said, Mr. Bupp, this is uh, Mr. Bobby Carter. You know, he's a Southern accent. He said, I just, I want to take a moment. I want I want to apologize. I want to apologize for the way I treated you guys. I want to apologize for thinking that um, you wouldn't be able to execute on that the, the, the beautiful plan that you have done over here. And this, I mean, anyway, this is a long apology. And he's like, I just want to take a moment today. He's like, I've been meaning to call you over the last six months as I've seen progress being made, but it's a year later. This place is great. And actually one of my staff members lives there. I'm like, oh boy. So <laughs> he was holding was, it off until he had to yeah, call you out on that day. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Like we, like he literally wrote me a letter then he wrote a letter of recommendation to another mayor that we were having an issue with in another state in another town. Wow. Um, basically saying like, I thought mobile home parks were the problem. I thought this, that, and the other, and that's not the case. And these guys proved me wrong. And uh, well, that was pretty cool. So awesome. Yeah. awesome. So I'm pretty that's, proud of that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's a big uh, change, especially one of your first ones, right? Because yeah, it was the very first one. You must mobile have been really scared. How come the mayor is not, not, not behind your back. Well, yeah, oh. we couldn't lose that money either. I didn't have much at that point in my. Uh, it was 2012. I was pretty broke back then, so I didn't make that money work. <laughs> that must be the the fuel that launched your your rocket and your motivation, I guess. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's it. So. So why not you tell our audience how to get a hold of you and your company? 
Yeah. Uh, best place to reach me personally, uh, my website, kevinbup.com. You can find me on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Uh, as far as our company, if you want to learn what we're doing in the mobile home park space, you can go to sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and get signed up there as well. We don't have an offering open today, but you know, you get signed up. We have a you know secure portal and get updates from us when you know we have deals coming about and things of that nature. But yeah, other than that, uh, I'm not too hard to track down. So <laughs> pretty easy awesome. to find. iTunes, I've got a couple of podcasts as we had mentioned earlier. So again, you can find me in many different places. And awesome. now you can also find me on James's show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks for coming. It was an awesome podcast. You have a lot of interview, a lot of uh, value that you gave us and, and I'm happy to have you on my show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, James. And it's been a pleasure knowing you and I appreciate all you do in the podcast. I know how much work it is to put these things out. So it thank you for, work, for taking time to, to get back to everyone. So happy much appreciated. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audio book. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.